evidence and answers. Can we trace our genealogical record to a historical pair of first parents? New studies in genetics say yes. This would then build a good case for the Genesis account of the creation of man and woman. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Fazal Rana, will conclude their discussion regarding the evidence for a genealogical Adam and Eve. Now with part two is Fazal Rana. And there's been a really nice study done by two scientists, Anne Gager at the Discovery Institute and Olaf Hosser from Europe, and they basically showed that you could actually start with two individuals and generate the genetic variability that we see in the human population. And what's interesting is they are the first people to ever actually probe that question. Everybody just assumed that would be impossible, but nobody actually did the work to check it out. And when they did, they discovered that it is possible to build models that could account for the genetic variability starting only with two people. So you're saying that original parents and slight genetic modification could create all the different races that we see today in the human population. Yes, you can show that Wow. Hosser model and then the idea of the extensive racial diversity around the world again can can be easily accounted through through what we would call microevolution, just variations in within the human species as a re result of migrations. There's mm. been some recent work done showing that you could easily explain, you know, racial diversity in humanity in the matter of just a few generations, again, through the combination of migration and the accumulation of, you know, microevolutionary changes. Wow. Well, Fuzz, you said that we could probably trace to the time closely when humans did appear on the Earth. So approximately when did humans appear on the Earth? Well, the scientific data seems to indicate in the neighborhood of about 100 to maybe 150,000 years ago. There's quite a bit of uncertainty in the scientific data. Now, you know, many people would see that as being problematic, you know, with respect to the biblical account because they're under the impression that the biblical account indicates that humanity must have appeared about 6,000 years ago. But that analysis is based on looking at the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 and as I studied, you know, the approaches that are valid in terms of interpreting the genealogies, most Old Testament scholars would argue that those genealogies are theological constructs. They really are not meant to try to calculate or estimate when Adam and Eve would have existed. In fact, they would argue that the structure of those genealogies makes it really impossible for us to really know biblically when Adam and Eve were created. It's clear from Scripture that Adam and Eve were the, the last of God's creative acts, so we would expect that they should appear relatively recently in life's history, but we can't really tell from Scripture when that would have been, and so there's no conflict, in my view, between the scientific dates and between the, the biblical text. But also I think it's important to keep in mind that with those scientific dates, there's a high degree of uncertainty. And so we don't precisely know when Adam and Eve, scientifically speaking, other than we know it was relatively recently. 
Yes, and you know, saying that they appeared a hundred thousand years ago does not somehow open the door that humans evolved from chimps and apes at all, does it? No, it doesn't. And you know, this idea from a evolutionary biologist standpoint is a radical idea to say that humanity had a recent origin in a single location from a you know a small population of individuals, arguably from you know a, a primordial pair. That's a radical idea among evolutionary biologists and really overturned a long-held view of human evolution that argued human evolution happened over the span of two million years and that, that humans evolved in different parts of the world. And so it's a very different uh, model from the traditional evolutionary model. And, you know, it's very clear that even though evolutionary biologists view origins from the standpoint of, of evolution, that many of the details of those model, that, that model overlaps with the biblical understanding. Yes. Now, you talked about the Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 genealogy, and, and there's some that look at the genealogy in Luke 3, you know, that seems to go from Jesus all the way back to Adam. And they're saying, well, I mean, if you take that seriously, you, you know, man appeared six to 10,000 years later. It, it can't be 100,000. How do you respond to that? Yeah, and, and that's a, a common objection, and I'm really sympathetic to the concern there that's being raised. But, you know, as I mentioned, you know, when I've read uh, Old Testament scholars who, you know, describe the best way to interpret the genealogies, they really are meant to communicate theological truths. So, for example, the genealogy in Genesis 5, which goes from Adam to Noah, is meant to communicate two things, that all of Adam's descendants bear God's image and that that death that Adam experienced as a result of his rebellion in the Garden of Eden is also propagated to all of his descendants as well. That's really the theological point. And the genealogies in the Old Testament are essentially, again, theological constructs that many times will omit people that are part of the genealogy. And you can show by comparing genealogies in Scripture that in some genealogies, names are omitted that appear in other genealogies. And so the, there are names that are omitted. It doesn't mean the genealogies are unreliable. It's just that, that theologically that particular individual wouldn't be needed. Also, those genealogies many times are written according to a pattern. So in both Genesis 5 and 11, it's 10 names where the final mention in the genealogy is the birth of three sons. So it's a 10 plus 3 pattern. If you go to the genealogy in Matthew, I think a 14 plus 14 plus 14 pattern, if I'm not mistaken, I, I may be uh, uh, getting my numbers wrong there. So if I, I am, please forgive me. But the idea is that you know, conform to a pattern. And then, for example, the word that is translated as son, ben, can also mean descendant. And the word that's translated as begot can mean give rise to a lineage. And so, for example, the Old Testament scholar Ken Kitchen argues that the way you read the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 is that there was a patriarch X who gave rise to a line that included at some point in it patriarch Y. Again, it's describing, you know, ancestor-descendant relationships, not necessarily, strictly speaking, father-son relationships, where, again, there's names that are omitted and there's a pattern that is used to construct the genealogy 
So it's a theological construct, not a, a timekeeping device. Yes, you're exactly right. In in Hebrew or the you know ancient Near Eastern kinds of languages, there really is no name for great great grandson, you know, or even great grandson. So they use the term son of, meaning in the line of. So yeah, they're really and they're really mentioning you know the significant people in the genealogy. So yeah, if you put all the genealogies in the Bible side by side, you see that, yeah, indeed what you're saying, there are gaps in there. So we could be talking about a much longer time than just six to 10,000 years. Yes. And, you know, and again, uh, I am sympathetic to people that feel uncomfortable with that. But again, I, I just don't see any reason biblically to think that, you know, the scientific dates for the origin of humanity are in conflict with the biblical account. Yes. Now, where would the Genesis flood account fit in? According to Genesis 6 through 9, the entire world was flooded, as some would view it, and that, therefore, the entire race begins with the family of Noah. So then again, it, it should be pretty young uh, when you know hum- human civilization began again. Yeah, well, I hold to the view that the flood was a real event that impacted all of humanity, but that the flood was confined only to Mesopotamia. So I don't hold to a global flood view, but a a local flood view. And I would say that clearly the flood would have happened before humans began to migrate around the world. And so I would try to place the flood event about the time frame where human migrations took place, which, according to the scientific data, is in the neighborhood of, I don't know, 50 to 60,000 years ago. And again, you know, for some people that creates quite a bit of discomfort, but uh, that that would just simply be the approach that I take. Also, to be fair, I'm still working through, in my mind, exactly how the flood account fits in with the, the scientific data and uh, how it fits in with the, the particular model that I'm presenting for human origin. So to me, it's still very much a work in progress. But again, when you look at the pattern of human migration around the world, that pattern matches what you see described, you know, in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, right? It, that pattern of migration matches what you see in Genesis 10. And when humans began to migrate around the world, the migration was very rapid, which is the sense that you get from reading the Genesis account of humans as they began to migrate around the world after the flood. So I see quite a bit of overlap. You know, also there's a, an area known as paleolinguistics where you know, you can actually look, do a similar thing with languages that you can do with genetics, right, to trace the origin of language. And it does look like language actually traces back to a proto-language that, uh, you know, appears in the Middle East and would be consistent in terms of its appearance with about the time that the migrations began. So to me, there's a lot of questions I'm still sorting through myself, but there are you know, again, are are these interesting scientific observations that really make it seem as if the flood account in Scripture, again, like the human origins account, bears scientific credibility. Yes, and the term earth there, or world, can often mean from the perspective of the biblical writer. It's not a violation of 
inerrancy there. So what you're talking about, a regional flood, is very possible. Like in the Genesis 41:57, it says, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Well, I don't think people from China, you know, and India and Southeast Asia were coming to Egypt for grain because if there was a famine severe in their land and they were traveling all the way to Egypt for food, by the time they got back, people would be dead. Also, Luke 3, it, it says that Caesar, you know, took a census of all the world. Well, I don't think the Romans were taking census of people in China and in India or anything. So he's writing from the author's perspective and that would not be a violation of inerrancy there if we hold you know to a regional flood that would be you know the, the point that i would make is that yeah the language that you see in genesis 6 through 9 is really perspectival language mm-hmm. yes now we're talking about the human dna here and how does dna then point to an intelligent creator. Now it's becoming one of the most powerful evidence for intelligent design. Yeah, well, you know, to me, what is really interesting about DNA is that it's an information harboring system, and the information in DNA is not only digital information, but it's also analog information as well. This is a, a, a more recent insight about the information content in DNA, and just the mere fact that we see information is suggest the work of the mind because, you know, our experience is that information comes from a mind, comes from an intelligent agent. So if, you know, as a, an example, if we were driving into a town and we're in the outskirts of that town and we see on the hillside a pile of rocks, well, we wouldn't think anything of it. But if those pile of rocks were arranged to say welcome, we would know right away that that information that was instantiated in the rocks themselves, in the arrangement of the rocks, was designed by a mind and was meant to communicate something to us. And the mere fact that we see information in in DNA, to me, suggests the work of the mind. But what I find amazing is that the information in DNA is also structured identically to how we would structure human language. And so it's not just merely information, but there's a, a structure to it that is highly reminiscent of human language, which is really, you know, provocative. And then on top of that, there's similarity between the way the information is structured in DNA and how computer systems operate. There was a chemist at Trinity University in Dublin, Ireland, who noted a number of years ago that there's what's known as an even-bit parity code built into the structure of DNA. And this is a technique used by information scientists to to detect error in data transmission. That, to me, is really remarkable. And then the way that the cell's machinery manipulates DNA is identical to how computer systems operate at their most basic level. The machinery that manipulates DNA are what would be called Turing machines, which are the foundational machinery that are used to build computer systems. And what's interesting is that that similarity is so remarkable that it's inspired a new area of nanotechnology called DNA computing, where scientists are literally building computers out of DNA and the the different proteins that manipulate DNA. And so these collection of observations are so mind-boggling to me as a biochemist and only find explanation if life really is the work of a a creator, the work of a mind. Is it possible, or what's the probability that 
DNA could have come about by the process, by the evolutionary process, natural causes acting randomly here. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got so much information content built embedded in DNA, and we're only just beginning to understand that information content. And the more that we learn about it, you know, the, the, the greater and the greater the level of information that we see in DNA and the more and more sophisticated its organization is. And so it really becomes hard to envision uh, how that level of, of information could be generated through evolutionary means. It's interesting because there's a, an astrobiologist named Paul Davies yeah. who argues that really the information that we're seeing in the cell is actually in the form of instructions. That's the, the he argues that's the way to think about it. And we know that instructions again come from the work of a mind, right? And he argues that there's absolutely no way to explain how the instructions that we see embedded in the different molecules in the cell could have ever come about through evolution. There's no mechanism that anybody knows of for how that kind of information would arise. Oh, that's that's quite amazing because we are often taught that uh, there is a mechanism in which these natural causes somehow could have created something like this. But you're saying they, there isn't any mechanism that they've discovered. Well, for example, when it comes to like the origin of life, you can in a laboratory evolve like random RNA sequences so that they have information content. Uh, this is a process called in vitro evolution. But when you examine the details, what you see is that there is design that is in, in essentially embedded into the experimental protocol. And so, yes, you are generating information, quote unquote, with evolutionary processes, but those processes are manipulated by intelligent agents. They're not operating, you know, independently on their own, you know, in a natural environment. And so it is possible, I think, to tweak the information content in DNA through evolution, but to generate that information content from scratch, that to me is where I think evolutionary biologists have not been able to demonstrate how that could happen. Yeah, you know, I think it's like the illustration you gave. You know, if you're driving into a city and you see a pattern of rocks that says, welcome, you would immediately assume an intelligent mind put it together. And to say that it comes about by evolutionary means, it's kind of like saying, well, it just so happened that there was an earthquake and these rocks fell from the cliff and landed right here on this spot that was visible and in a pattern that says welcome, right? I mean, that could happen. But what's the probability of that? And what's the more reasonable conclusion? Well, a more reasonable conclusion is that uh, it's a product of intelligent design. And I think that's what you're saying when it comes to DNA, right? And what we're seeing is just the evidence continues to point to intelligent design. It makes it a much more reasonable case. Yes. And to me, again, it's not only just simply the presence of the information, but it's the fact that that information is structured in the way that we would structure information, that it looks like language, right? It, it looks like language. It looks There are features in that information that are reminiscent of how we manipulate information. We know when we are manipulating it digitally in electronic devices and computer systems. And so to me, those all are individual 
evidences for the work of an intelligent agent that kind of interrelate to each other and stack on top of each other. So it's really kind of a, a weight of evidence, right? It's not just simply, oh, there's information there, but that information looks exactly the way we'd expect it to look if there was a, a mind that created that information. Yeah, so I guess as we bring this show to an end, I mean, we could have gone on for uh, another hour on this. It's just absolutely fascinating. But to summarize it, how do we understand then human origins and Adam and Eve in a progressive creation model, or what we call old earth creationist model? Yeah, well, old earth creationism would say that the days in Genesis 1 are periods of time, not 24 hours. But an old earth creationist who's a progressive creationist would say that the Genesis 1 account is a real history of Earth and a real history of life on Earth that is clearly orchestrated by God who is intervening to bring about his creative purposes. And that would include the origin of of Adam and Eve. So we would see, again, Adam and Eve as part of God's creative work where they are created on, again, the sixth day of creation, which is the last day of creation. They're created at the very end. And so, you know, we would would say that, you know, like somebody who holds to a a young earth perspective, that Adam and Eve were real people. They were the first human beings. They were created by God. They didn't evolve. So we would share a lot of the same views as young earth creationists would share or would have or would hold to. The different primary difference would be the length of the days in Genesis 1, periods of time versus 24 hours. Yes, and Fuzz, you know, as we close, some Christians may be asking, well, why should I care about science? I mean, the Bible says what it says, and that's it. Science really doesn't matter. Or, you know, why should I care about the science? Well, you know, I think there are two reasons. One is that Scripture tells us that God has made himself known to us through the record of nature. And if that's the case, then, and if science is a study of nature, then we would expect that when we're properly interpreting the scientific record, we should see evidence for God's fingerprints. And so for me as a Christian, those fingerprints that I see in the created order inspire me to worship God. It's another way for me to gain insight and understanding of my creator. uh, And that prompts me to to want to worship God more deeply. But uh, also, I would say that we live in a world today that's so strongly influenced by science and technology. And sadly, there are so many people who feel like science and the Christian faith are in conflict, that there is no evidence for God's existence from science, that science has rendered the creation accounts unreliable. And the fact of the matter is the opposite, that we see a lot of scientific evidence that points to a creator. We see growing scientific evidence that demonstrates the credibility of Scripture, science becomes a very powerful tool for us to share our faith with non-believers who are influenced by science, where now science allows us to build a bridge to the gospel with secular people that are, again, so strongly influenced by science. So to me, there's an element of studying the world around us through science that strengthens my faith as as a believer. It prompts me to worship God more deeply, but I think it makes me more effective at sharing the gospel with other people who just simply can't respond to the gospel because they don't think God exists or the Bible is reliable. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Fazale Rana. 
Vice President of Reasons to Believe. And Fuzz, if people want more information on you and resources and the books that you've written and articles, where can they go to get more information? The easiest thing to do is to visit our website at reasons.org, and there you can gain a, a good introduction to our organization and gain access to all kinds of resources, Many, much of it which is freely available to you. That would be the easiest way to do it. I'm also on a Twitter at, at RTB underscore F Rana, or if people want to look me up on Facebook, they can do that as well. Fantastic. And you can also go to Evidence and Answers, our website. We have numerous uh, interviews with the staff from Reasons to Believe. Fantastic interviews with many of their staff, the scientists there on their staff. So, Fuzz, once again, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. Pat, as always, it's a pleasure to hang out with you. Keep yourself safe. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrath.